Well, as has been mentioned, this is an exciting text for us this morning, Hebrews 3.1, and it does two things uh, I thought of immediately to point out to you, is one, the element that's exciting for me this morning explaining this particular text. I began this week with dealing with 1, 1 through 6. And reading over that and working through that passage, it began you know, to chop its way from 6 to 5, from 5 to 4, from 4 to 3, 2 to 1. And here we are this morning, just going to take our time this morning with 3 verse 1, because it does two things for us. One, it unites us to our theme. So it, it, again, we've established a theme going through the book of Hebrews, and that is to consider Jesus. And then the book of Hebrews will describe for us the various ways that we will consider him and what the appropriate measures are for us to take in our lives as we consider him. So that's kind of the theme, number one, for how we're handling the book of Hebrews in this text is the explicit statement where that theme stands out, that we, the people of God, would consider Jesus. Second element uh, of our time in verse 1 this morning that is exciting for us is it unites us back to that discussion we have had throughout the course of the summer, and that is a discussion on law and gospel. We'll see here as he counsels us, as he exhorts us, the apostle to the Hebrews as he exhorts us, he does so through a right understanding of law and gospel. So, take those two elements as we consider it. One, considering Jesus. Two, law and gospel. And put those together, and this is what we see in chapter 2 and chapter 1. Consider Jesus through a right understanding of law and gospel. So it's exciting to have both our theme and our language all throughout our hard work to be rewarded, right? through the summer of law and gospel, to now see it in Hebrews be so beautifully applied to our lives. Now, when I said to you before, uh, several weeks back, uh, that uh, the writer describes his book that he wrote here, at the end of the book in chapter 13, he describes it as, bear with my word of, do you recall, exhortation. Bear with my word of exhortation. And we're like, what is a word of exhortation? And we begin to look, and then we see, oh, this is used yet again in the book of Acts. And Paul is giving a word of exhortation, and then he begins to use his hands and explain the text. And we say, ah, a word of exhortation is a sermon. And so we see here in the book of Hebrews, as he gives us a sermon to you and to I, to the people of God, about considering Jesus, a message that each one of us need. And not only in a destination kind of language, like, you know, consider Jesus. When you die, what's going to become of you? But rather in an active sense of each and every day, be the people of God. And being the people of God means considering Jesus all the time. At every pass, with every care, and every concern, Look to Jesus. And so I want to show you, he gives us this word of exhortation this morning. That is, he's urgently speaking to us. I hope the text will urgently speak to you this morning about considering Jesus. Not like 
in a moment this morning, but as in a mark of belonging to Him. You consider Him in your life. At the very beginning of the exhortation, you'll notice the presence of the gospel. That's significant for us, again, in how we as God's people consider the role of the law and the role of the gospel in our life. Notice verse 1 with me, and hopefully I can show you what I mean. Chapter 3, verse 1, as was just read for us by Todd. Notice, therefore, he's speaking to you right here in this word of exhortation. Holy brothers, you, he goes on to further describe you, you who share in a heavenly calling. Do you see how he's appealing to you? Deeply from the gospel. The therefore, you know that, and and as a good student or a natural reader, and an English-speaking individual, you recognize that it is a thought connective, right? To everything that was just described to you. The therefore, in other words, sets apart what we're about to hear him exhort us unto. It sets it apart as deeply marked as a natural response for you. Because of what's already been described about who you are. Right? He he says it like this, perhaps. Therefore. I say, therefore, what was described? What is so natural? That is the gospel. Holy brothers, you. You who share in a heavenly calling. Those are gospel realities in your life. This is how he's reminding you. This is how he's about to exhort you by the presence of the gospel first. This is a natural response. It's a therefore a natural response for you in your life because of the presence of the gospel in your life is to consider Jesus. Let me show you what the therefore thought connective was. We've worked through it, but by way of refreshment, I know that, as I've said before, uh, you all do memorize the sermons. You're a very attentive crowd. I can tell you remember every word that we've ever spoken. But for my own sake, can we briefly review what has been stated about the gospel in your life? That this then, therefore, would be to you a very natural response for you because of what's been described of what Christ has done for you. Look in chapter 2 of what he has already described about the natural realities of the gospel in your life. Begin with me as you look, verse 9 of chapter 2. But we see him for who little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And he draws you right to Christ, who he's about to remind you to consider. He draws you to Jesus, who is crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for you, for everyone. Remember? Jesus tasted death for the people of God. 
We could just go from verse 9 now, and I don't need to remind you of all the other pieces, do I? Because that right there is enough for you to hear, quite naturally, a therefore. We think, no, my life belongs to me. I'm doing my own thing. I'm carving out my own time. I have my own existence. I have my own to-do list. That doesn't make sense, does it? Because Jesus tasted death for you. Therefore, a natural response, a natural consequence of that is to consider him. Look at the rest of the realities I'll briefly describe. Look with me in verse 11. For he who sanctifies you, or he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The therefore unites you to the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. He who made you holy. Therefore, naturally, consider him. He tasted death for you. He set you apart as belonging to his great covenant of grace. Therefore, Consider him. Continue with me as we briefly look. I'll look at verse 14. Notice in verse 14, what did he do for the people of God? In verse 14, he reminds you, the believer, he became flesh and blood for the children. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That's what he did. That through his death, that is his tasting death for the children, for the people of God, his tasting death for you in order that he might destroy his and your enemy, the devil. Verse 15, he destroyed your enemy and he delivered you, verse 15, from captivity. That through fear of death, those who were subject to lifelong slavery. Look in verse 17. He made propitiation for the sins of the people of God. Look in verse 18. This is what we focused on last week as we came to the text. I trust your heart has gone there throughout the course of your week. By grace have been reminded through trial and ordeal that he is able to help the offspring of Abraham because he tasted death for them. So he has been resurrected and is able to offer aid to the people of God. Therefore, if we look at verse 1 then, after he explains to you these realities through chapter 2, the therefore is a natural consequence to the holy brothers, to the children who share in a heavenly calling, It is a natural consequence that you would consider Jesus with your life. It displays a word of counsel, doesn't it? You're hearing a word of exhortation this morning, an urgent word. That is, he's urging you to do something. 
And how is he doing it? But reminding you this morning of who you are in Christ. He is counseling you from the foot of the cross. This is what he has done for you. Therefore, quite naturally, consider him. This is the way that he is exhorting you this morning, earnestly from the foot of the cross. That is his work of affirmation to each one of us. Maybe this is a way that we can now continue even to counsel ourselves as we do at various points of ordeal or crisis. As we rely upon the help of Christ, that we see he is able, he has been raised, and he offers help to the offspring of Abraham, to those for whom he tasted death. He also does sanctify He also does care for. He also will glorify. He is able to help the offspring of Abraham. And so before he gets to the portion this morning in verse 1, following next, the portion of exhortation, he reminds you of position. Because a rightful understanding of your identity in Christ a rightful understanding that you have been justified, that Jesus has given propitiation, made propitiation for you, that he is the apostle and high priest of your faith. That is, he brought God to you and took you to God. He reminds you of these realities because a rightful understanding of them by faith will inform, shape, and change our practice. Remember, that's how Paul spoke in the book of Romans. We looked at it earlier in our Law and Gospel series when we considered that in Romans 6, the issue was not, remember, as he's saying, don't present your members unto unrighteousness. And you say, that's exactly right. They need more. And we would say they need more law. They need to be reined in. They need to have more hedges set about them. But you remember Paul does the exact opposite. He tells them more gospel. Because indeed, he encourages them. You are under grace. For the rightful understanding of our position hidden in Jesus will naturally affect our practice before Him. It isn't that we have too much of the gospel in our preaching or in our small groups or in the church collective. It's that we have too little for a right understanding of it. And this is what the apostle knows. Therefore, before I say, therefore consider, he says, therefore, what? Holy brothers. Therefore consider, wait, no, therefore, you, remember, who share in a heavenly calling? That is, remember your position, and it will naturally affect your practice. This is a word of exhortation to you, a wise application. 
of law and gospel. I spoke earlier this summer about it. Remember how if, 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 if we came to one another and simply exhorted in commands, do you remember I likened it to the language of the bracelet, right? Well, uh, we have these ones. Uh, for now. Uh, the bracelet, maybe you wore one. I, I think it was cool in the 90s. Uh, I don't imagine you still have one. If you do, sorry for the offense. Um, it, 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 it was the, uh, what would Jesus do uh, in the 90s? And, and that, 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 was, that was hitting us, right? And, 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 we, and we likened that. Okay, great. So as we understand WWJD, which is an appropriate element as our Savior and example is He, Yet, as we consider what would Jesus do, as the writer of Hebrews would come this morning from chapter 3, verse 1, and say to those who are seriously considering turning away from Christ and going back into the Mosaic Law, does he just stand and say, WWJD? And they're like, oh, that's right, we better not. Right? Law's not enough. Law's not enough to leverage you. Because remember, the WWJD reminds us lawfully, what would Jesus do, right? Appropriate, appropriate. But we would kind of spin it around also, and we'd have secondly, uh, what has Jesus done? Right? That's law and gospel functioning on the bracelet now. We, rec- we recognize gospel. And this is what he says to us, therefore, Holy brothers, gospel children, saints, holy, set apart unto God by Jesus, who became flesh for you, dealt with your sins at Calvary, was raised for your justification. That's who you are. What has Jesus done? There's power there. And then he also encourages you with what Jesus would do. A role of obedience for the believer. My example is he. But if I go, what, what would Jesus do first? Consider Jesus. I would say, great, but I don't have the power within me to be able to do it. Law, remember, a command to a Christian is a compass. It tells me what Jesus would do. but it gives me no power to do it. But what Jesus has done, chapter 2, gives me the power to look upon what He would do and by His enabling grace, do likewise. And this is how He exhorts you and me to position that it might then quite naturally affect our practice. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. So then that moves us on beyond this great wise handling of law and gospel in the application to the people of God. What has Jesus done and what would Jesus do in this great work? Quite naturally, it would arise to the believer as you hear the great glories of the gospel. And you look at chapter 2 and you see all that Christ undertook for you, a child. You quite naturally will ask, by the presence of the Spirit in your life, you'll naturally ask, what is my duty now being justified. That's, that, that, that's what the child will respond with. What is my duty? Not what is my duty that I may be justified. 
If I consider him, and I consider him at the right time, and I consider him in the right categories, might I be justified? No. Now that I am justified, how then might I consider him? What is my duty having been justified? This is the role of law and gospel. And the writer of Hebrews knows that as he applies it to the people of God in this word of exhortation to consider Jesus. So if you were to ask with me, as looking at uh, verse 1, as, a, as you would, by faith in Christ, see that you are, one, there, a holy brother. That is, you are set apart unto the Lord by Christ and in Christ. You are a holy child. And you share in a heavenly calling. That is, he who is resurrected and is now interceding is also going to draw you up to be with him in a new creation and inhabit his new created world. As you recognize, I am one of them, you naturally ask, what then is my duty to perform? And the answer from the text You see there, don't you? What is the answer? What is my duty having now been justified as a holy brother? The answer from the text is consider Jesus. That is your duty. That is, as we speak of a natural consequence to the gospel, it is also herein a necessary consequence. To the gospel. Let me clarify. As we see, it is a natural consequence for a child to say, What is my duty? Yet it is also a necessary consequence for a child to ask, What is my duty? That is, by the power of the Spirit through the gospel, we will, won't we? We do, don't we? We will ask. We will consider. But we must consider. It is natural and yet necessary that the child of God consider Jesus. It is both. That is, this word here by the apostle is he gives us a word of law. He gives us a command to the Christian. It properly belongs to law. How is it? He comes and says, consider Jesus. That is a command upon you. Consider Jesus. And you say, it is law. Why? Why is it law? Because it cannot be produced by us. That's why he calls, reminds you that you're holy children. It must be produced in us by the Spirit. So he reminds us, in a skillful use of law and gospel, by reminding us of the gospel as he exhorts us unto lawful obedience, He reminds us, chapter 2 shows us that we have been, each of us in this room, by grace through faith in Christ, we have been enabled to do so, and we are obliged to do so. 
enabled through the gospel, given a command of obedience through law. As gospel children, you have been enabled, and also you are obliged to consider Jesus with your life. It is a natural yet necessary call to the child. Consider him. Not as in like a decision moment or a moment of ordeal, but as in a mark of being a holy brother, a mark of being a child. Each pass, each ordeal, each moment of joy and the good gifts that he gives, consider Jesus as you belong to him and share in a heavenly calling. Position. It's important. That's why we say we, we must be a gospel-centered people. We must look to Christ because that knowledge of our position hidden in him will naturally yet necessarily affect our practice. I want to pause here just for a moment just because this is our theme for the book of Hebrews. This language of consider Jesus is this important theme for us as we're going through the book. And I want to explore with you, I thought, just for a few moments, because that is our theme, I wanted to kind of pause here, let our hearts meditate on the question of how then do I consider Jesus? Or what are in some ways that I can? Because remember, considering, as the apostle is writing it, consider Jesus in your choice. Here, if you're turning back to the old covenant or in your marriage and faithfulness, consider Jesus. It's not, in other words, an abstract concept to consider Jesus. There are concrete steps of obedience, heartfelt response to the realities of the gospel that are measures and markers of considering Jesus. So I want to kind of spend a couple of moments here uh, on how this week, each one of you can kind of ask with me, how can I then consider Jesus? Or maybe you ask it, in what way would I consider Jesus this week in my hectic schedule? I think the answer, let me make a proposal to you in how we might consider Jesus in our hectic schedule this week or as we go beyond this 40-minute, maybe even less today. I better not get your hopes up. Maybe a few minutes more. Either way, when this is done, how might we continue as those holy children that set apart people of God to consider Jesus from the heart at every pass as he provides through the gospel quite naturally for us to do so? How might we do it? My proposal to each of us is to consider viewing, if you could with me just for a second, view your to-do list. I'm not a to-do list people, so it's a little bit uh, different. Uh, Adrienne, my wife, is an extremist to-do list. Um, so I kind of feed off hers, and then she tells me where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. And so my list is her list. But maybe you're more of a list person. Um, and so either way, you know uh, whether you're executing them on that like elongated paper that says to-do list at the top and you take time to actually write those items out or by now digitally on your phone you set your appointments. Uh, however that is, take this idea of whether you write or you just live in the, in the realm of the idea that you have some things to do. Either way, we're considering a task and a point of execution. 
So what I would encourage each of us, in light of this idea, the, the, the theology of considering Jesus, I'd like us to take this to-do list idea and let us, my proposal is to you, step back from the item and view it through the big picture. Big picture of what? Not an abstract big picture, but the big picture of the story of God written and recorded for us in Holy Scripture. That is the big picture of what God has intended you to be in Christ as a believer. That is taking our to-do list and kind of letting it get swept up into the greater redemptive story. Not, not again, in the great, more abstract ideas. No, in concrete steps of obedience. But that we're not living like this and we're just executing to-dos. But we're recognizing, we're considering Jesus, as we execute those to-dos, context with our to-do list. Jack London, if you uh, are somewhat familiar, you didn't read the book White Fang, you watched the movie when it was on TV at some point, but the idea of the American novelist, uh, uh, quite ironically, he was an atheist, uh, yet uh, spoke quite clearly to several kind of uh, moral law issues. Looking out, you can observe, you can see this is better than that, and then he kind of eloquently might have stated it somewhere. And so, ironically, I would join with Jack London in this description of the life lived for the glory of God. Okay, so that, that's not what he's getting at, but like through him we can get there. And I think it's a great, a great description of exactly that idea of taking my pieces and plugging them in or allowing them by grace to be swept in to the greater redemptive story. That is what God has intended for me in Christ. Does he intend something? Of course he does. Chapter 2. He did everything that was necessary to bring God to you and you to God, the apostle and high priest. Does he have an intention and a work? Yes, he does. That is, Jack London would describe it, uh, if, if we could just pretend he is a Christian for a moment. He would describe uh, this greater idea uh, of life, this thought. Uh, he, he, he says this, quote, I would rather that my spark should burn out in a brilliant blaze than it should be stifled by dry rot. This is you and me. considering his life lived. He goes on, I would rather be a superb meteor. Every atom of me in magnificent glow than a sleepy and permanent planet. So he says, the function of a man is to live not to exist. He concludes, Therefore, I shall not waste my days trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. Let me describe for you three categories. When I was thinking of you this week 
and, and, and how we can consider Jesus. I thought of three categories that somewhat stand out or might reflect our congregation God is drawing here. And I thought, how can we, yes, just like Jack London is describing, how might our spark be given off in brilliant blaze? How might we, as he concludes, not just exist, but live? How might we use our time for the glory of God and considering Jesus? I thought three things. One, I thought of, consider with me, parenting. Parenting that is set ablaze. Your spark is burning brightly through parenting as you're considering Jesus in the work that you're performing with these little ones. I thought that this, uh, it was, um, oftentimes when you're preparing a message or considering the text, the Lord kind of can, can uh, um, prepare you for what you were about to say when you thought you were prepared to say it. And then you go through kind of this uh, washing machine effect um, where things occur and bumps and bruises and you're on the tumble setting and you're finally like, oh, that's, I, I, I might say it a bit differently this time. Um, so I was thinking of, 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 again, taking parenting as a category, what we all know it to be in raw detail, and that is raising little ones. And, and, and we take that kind of concept, and again, that's a to-do list item, right? Raise the kids. And, 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 and then it takes littler points of executions to do. That requires this piece of to-do list, this piece of to-do list. Okay, so we'll take the entire function of raising the little ones, thinking of parenting, and we want to use our time so we want to consider Jesus in parenting. Here as I'm like, you know, writing this down, jotting it down, I then go home and I'm sitting at the table and this idea that was borderline abstract for me at that moment quickly came crashing home to being very concrete. I needed to rethink this. Uh, we have a dinner table that's quite active. And so I'm sitting here, I'm trying to eat my meal. Adrian's always eating last because she's feeding everyone at the table at the same time. I'm eating, then we have one at the table, right? This is family chaos. This is the setting of which, again, I need my moment at the table to be swept up into something more meaningful. I need to consider Jesus at this table because I've got one grunting because the food is not being shoveled fast enough. So we got one just literally offering grunts to the family, barking kind of, grunting, barking at the table because we're just not doing it fast enough. Well, I'm being generous to myself. Adrian's not doing it fast enough. <laughs> and so we've got the, the grunting. And then we've got um, uh, all kinds of competition. One is trying to tell a story. One is trying to ask about what they did at school, if they could show you. One is just miscellaneously getting down from the table and leaving. And, you're all, and so you're, you're, you're saying, I'll talk to you. Not, and then another one shouting over the other. I'm trying to tell dad something. And then... Just keep it going. You know, so this is the moment. Okay. Our spark is not just to exist, make it through dinner, but to consider Jesus, that is, live through dinner with our little ones. How can we use our time as we consider Jesus at the table? And that is not just think in terms. And this is what I thought. This is how I get through dinner. That we're not just raising kids, but we're raising up God-fearers who bear his image. That's 
how we can, by grace, consider Jesus in the lives of little ones. No, I just got to wipe them here, wipe her there, send them off over to there, and then bandage them up when they come in. No, wait, 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 what are we even doing here? We're raising God-fearers. We're drawing them into the intentions that God has for them in Christ. Even through dinner time. That's considering Jesus for our home and parenting. Do you see how there's a different... Now we're united to Genesis, aren't we? We're raising up little prophets, priests, and kings. Consider marriage just briefly for a moment. I thought of the second category here with, oh, we have a lot of little ones. They're, they're graciously allowing me to go a couple more minutes. So there's parenting taking place here within the people of God, certainly. And then we think of the other element, just a natural one is marriage for us also. Many married individuals here. So we could say, consider your marriage not just to exist, but to live in marriage. There's a difference there. So what is it? I won't have this one quite so keenly memorized, but if I could share it with you, what does it mean for me to not waste my time in marriage with my spouse? If you could just join with me for a moment as I briefly describe, it means for spouses that we are not, consider with me, we are not merely negotiating our personal schedules and desires. That's what this is. Let's just work it out. I'm going here, you're going there. Well, you can't do that because I'm doing this. And, and, and all of us have been there. No, I'm doing this. Well, I'm not going to be able to because I'm... And, and so we think, that's what we're doing in this. We're just working it out. But we're not. When we are, we're back at the to-do list. We need to step back for God's intention for our marriage in Christ. That we might not waste our time, but use it in considering Jesus. So what does it mean then? Does it mean then? That is... We are co- coordinating. Consider this. You might be like, it doesn't come across that way. We'll take it. But consider that we are actually coordinating our energies. Coordinating. Our energies in fulfilling the Creator's mandate in our home to be fruitful and multiply. That's what we're doing. Something that matters in marriage. Yeah, it's momentary, but it matters. We are coordinating our energies and fulfilling the mandate of our Creator to being fruitful and multiplying. We are displaying the gospel as we sacrificially strive to love one another. That is something different than, hey, if you'll go over there, I'll run through there and get it. And you just grind it out. That certainly is an element of it. You have to go there and do that, and you can't. It, you have to live life, but that's it. Live life. Don't just exist, and do so by considering Jesus and His intention for you and your spouse. Don't lose it. Oh, hey, there you go. Use it or lose it, right? Would Jack London maybe would ascribe to that? I'm not going to lose it. I'm going to use it. My time. Final category for us. I think of parenting. I think of marriage, and then. Each one of us, and uh, uh, I thought of group one, uh, and our group one, two, individuality. 
individually. I'm not married yet, and I don't have kids, so how am I going to consider Jesus as an individual? Well, the encouragement is to recognize God's design for me in Christ is not to live into an island of my own. That's a tendency. Sometimes it's the fault of others by isolating an individual who is not a couple and who does not have children. It could be the tendency that just kind of bump, 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 bump out. And so then they do live as an island unto themselves. But we recognize if we consider Jesus in my individuality, if I consider Jesus in being single, I recognize his intention for me is not to live as an island unto myself. But with the gifts given me to care for my neighbor and the world within which he has placed me to exist. The church. I have no less value because I'm alone. So don't display less value by staying on an island, but pour forth what God has provided for you to him and your neighbor as one who considers Jesus in singleness. Don't waste your time trying to change it or prolong it. Use it. Let your spark brilliantly burn. From that natural, yet necessary, mark of the Christian life, may we be a people. This congregation, individual believers, might we be a people that consider Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you will strengthen us indeed by the command of Christ through the apostle that we might consider him who has set us free, our apostle and high priest of our faith. Might we be obedient because we have been enabled 